Well, good morning once again. Uh, welcome to All Nations. Um, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, but people call me DC. Uh, but it's always a joy. Like, I say this every Sunday, but uh, the day that I look forward to the most is today, uh, to see all you guys and to uh, be able to worship uh, and to know Jesus better uh, with you guys. So if you have your Bibles, um, let's open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And we're going to uh, read verses 32 to 42. Now, we are on the last stretch uh, of our series through the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we learned about the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples for the last time. The last time. Um, it was a supper that Jesus had with his closest friends right before one of those friends actually betrayed uh, Jesus. And so we are going to look at the last moment of Jesus' freedom before he's betrayed and handed over to the officials to be crucified. Um, this is going to be a very exposing uh, moment for us as we learn about Jesus in his last moment. All right, let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to gr be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found uh, them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. Amen. You know, one of the reasons why I believe the gospel accounts to be true are passages like this. Uh, if they were made up stories and just fabrications, I don't think the gospel authors would actually include this account of Jesus. Right? Such a vulnerable, seemingly cowardly episode, right, of a leader of a movement. Why would you include such a a moment in Jesus' life if you're trying to start a movement. Right? These details should be better left out because this is not a good look for Jesus if you think about it. It's how, how is this moment going to boost morale for followers? But yet every gospel writer and every gospel account, we see this very vulnerable and exposing moment in Jesus' life. You know, several years ago, as I was transitioning from my ministry in Cerritos, I was looking for opportunities. And one of those opportunities was in a, a church in Diamond Bar. And the final interview was with the senior pastor. Uh, so I made it that far. And uh, as we were conversing, I had one question that I wanted to ask him. I asked him this, uh, what is your outlook on the Korean American church between the first generation Korean-speaking people and the English-speaking people? What is your outlook? And I was hoping for, you know, uh, vision, uh, excitement. Now, as soon as I finished that question, his heart just was downcast. He was disheartened. 
he looked at me and said, doesn't look good. It's not looking good. I don't know. And I was like kind of puzzled for a second. I'm like, you want me to come to this church, right? But yet you're going to give me this kind of negative, pessimistic outlook on the Korean American church. And obviously I didn't take that job. And it was actually for that very reason that I didn't take that job, even though the offer was a good offer. Why? Because we want our leaders to be sure, confident, charismatic, courageous. That's what we want in our leaders. But yet, what we see here in Jesus Christ in his most vulnerable time is despair, agony, anguish, even to the point of death. What was the reason for this despair that Jesus is experiencing. And another question is, what were the disciples doing there? It seems like they had no point being there. They couldn't do the one thing that Jesus asked them to do. So how do we make sense of the disciples being there? There are three main ideas I want us to focus on today. First is Jesus' unique suffering. It's the first thing that we want to look at. Secondly, we want to look at our shared suffering. And lastly, how to suffer well. Once again, his unique suffering, our shared suffering, and how to suffer well. So first, his unique suffering. Now, there are numerous examples in Scripture, but also in history, of martyrs dying for their convictions. Socrates, a Greek philosopher who was challenging the status quo of his day, was sentenced to death by drinking a mixture of poison. But this guy went he just went like with a bang. He's like, I'll drink this. Courageous in facing death. He greeted death, as history tells us. The first martyr in the early, early church, his name was Stephen, or Stephen. He went out preaching the gospel, courageous in death as people were stoning him. But instead of greeting death and showing courage, we see Jesus in deep agony and despair. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, so far in the series through the Gospel of Mark, we've never seen Jesus like this. This is so different from the Jesus we've been learning about. But what's described here isn't just anxiety or fear. The Greek words here for greatly distressed and sorrow, what Jesus is experiencing here is spiritual torment. He's being tortured in this moment. Luke, the physician, in his own gospel account, tells us that Jesus was sweating drops of blood, which is a real medical condition called hematidrosis. Right? Under extreme physical and mental stress, what happens is your sweat glands rupture. And instead of sweat coming out, blood starts coming out. The question is, what caused Jesus such deep stress and anguish? And our first guess may, might be the prospect of the cross. The prospect of the cross. The cross was the form of capital punishment. It was an instrument of torture. Well, they were, it was like just drawn out torture until they died. Maybe that's what it was. But even actually before the cross, what they did was they flogged the criminal. 
right? With long strips of leather attached to it, nails. And they would flog Jesus. And so his back would be torn open. And then he would have to carry the crossbeam on his open back. Maybe that's what it was. Or, or how about going through the city that he was familiar with and people shouting and screaming, mocking and spitting at him? Maybe that's why Jesus was filled with anguish and, and this torment because of the shame that he was going to endure. Was it the cross? Because right, any, normal, any normal human being, knowing the pain and the shame of the cross, would feel angst and distress. Anyone would. But was it really the cross that crippled Jesus to this type of fear and despair? And the answer is no. No. It wasn't the prospect of the cross. Then what was it? Verse 36, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He first addresses God as Abba, which is an Aramaic word right, of affection and intimacy that you'll say to a father. This would have been utter, like utter shock. This would have been so new for the modern hearers. Because in Palestinian Judaism, there was no instance that anyone would call God or address God as Abba. It's like a child speaking to his father. It would have been too irreverent and casual for anyone to address God in this way. Right? In the Korean language, we have Aboji. Right? It's a very form way, formal way to address your, your dad. But then we also have Appa. Right? In the English language, we have something similar. We say father. And then we have dad or daddy. What Jesus is doing here, he's calling his father dad, Appa. So Jesus uses this word, Abba, and this is the first clue, right? First clue to the uniqueness of his suffering. The second clue is in the request for the hour to pass and for the cup to be removed. Now the hour and the cup are apocalyptic symbols telling us of the end times of judgment and condemnation, right? It's referring to judgment, the hour of judgment and the bitter cup of condemnation. And Jesus is requesting for the hour to pass and for the cup to be removed. Psalm 75, verse 8, this is how, this is how we are to learn about the cup. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus' unique suffering is found in these two words that have no business being together. Abba and the cup. There is no way that these two words will be found in the same sentence. A term of intimacy and a term for judgment and wrath. See, the cup is reserved for guilty sinners, objects of wrath, for the wretched and for the wicked, the very enemies of God are called to drink this cup. The crazy thing is, Jesus is none of those things. This bitter cup is reserved for God's worst enemies, not his child. And so there's no earthly equivalent 
or parallel to the torment that Jesus is experiencing. There's nothing that we experience here that can, that can relate to what, happens, is what is happening here in Jesus' life. Any attempt would be folly. All right, think about the most dearest, closest, and intimate relationship you have. It might be your spouse, your children. It might be even a pet, a friend. And you get the news that you only have a few days left with that individual or that pet. How would you feel? You only have a few days left. The thought of me not having Jane, my wife, or having any one of my children is not with me anymore. I only have a few days left with them. It would destroy me. It would devastate me. Right? Jane has been a part of my life for almost nine years, 10 years now as my wife. Right? Included in, in the womb, right? I've known Deacon for about, what, seven years. My daughter Devin, four years. My daughter Dylan for about two years. Now, let's take the youngest one. I've only known Dylan for two years of my life. Now, if I knew that she would not be in my life anymore, I think I would die, literally. That's how much I love my youngest one. But I've only known her for two years. Why is, why is losing a loved one like, so difficult? Why is that? Because the ultimate form of suffering is a loss of love, is it not? It's a loss of love. That's the ultimate form of suffering. Now think about this. A union, intimacy, and affections between God the Father and the Son has been for how long? Eternity. Even before time began, God the Father and God the Son were so intimately one and united. They shared affections. They glorified each other. They submitted to one another. All they knew was love. The thought of me, even my, my two-year or my one-year-old, I can't even think, I can't even imagine. Think about eternity. The Father and the Son have always, from eternity, have remained in loving intimacy. So then drinking the cup meant that union will now be severed for the first time. That alone is unfathomable, right? We we can't we can't comprehend with our finite minds. But the severing of that union will come in the most horrendous and terrifying way. See, Jesus, although sinless and guiltless, when he goes to that cross, he'll bear with himself the guilt, not of just a group of individuals, not just of me, but of the entire world. Imagine the guilt that you feel after you, you've, you've been caught doing something wrong. That, that is, it's, over, it's overbearing, isn't it? Now imagine that for the entire world, Jesus consuming that for himself. The whole sum and weight of God's hatred towards sin will fall upon his beloved son. See, the magnitude and weight of Jesus' suffering at this moment cannot be comprehended by us. Now see, a couple of weeks ago, I came home exhausted and tired. I had a really long day, but as soon as I come home, the first thing that I hear is just a yelp from my kids. I pass home. And the first thing that Deacon asked me to do every time is, let's play. Let's play. And it's not just like, you know, simple like games or anything. It's like, let's play Plants vs. Zombies. Let's play Lion and Tiger. These are like really physical, strenuous, like 
things that I have to do. But that day, I just, I, I couldn't do it. So I just plopped down on the couch, right? And I, he's like tugging on me. I play with me, play with me. And I was like, Deacon, I don't want to play with you right now. That's what I said to him. Right? He let out a scream. He goes, ah! And he runs into his room and he just starts weeping and crying. Right? I will not win the father of the year this year. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I was just too exhausted and tired. But what I told him was, I, can't, I don't want to play with you right now. It's not like I, I said, I hate you. Right? Or I'm angry with you. I just, I, just, I just can't play with you right now. But if I told Deacon, I don't want to play with you because I'm mad at you or I hate you. Like, because my son is sensitive like me, that would destroy him. That would utterly destroy him if I said that. Jesus here, as a son, he knows that he will become the very object of his father's anger and wrath. From a father that he's only known love and affection for the first time ever, he's going to experience his father's wrath. No wonder Jesus was disoriented. No wonder he was staggering and stumbling. See, this moment gives us greater perspective at the opportunities that Jesus had to evade and escape this cup. Think about it. The third temptation in the wilderness, what was it? Satan comes to him. He's like, hey, look at all the kings of the world. You bow down to me, I'll give this to you. You don't have to go to the cross. Think about that. That's so enticing. And when the people riled up and they're just like, we'll make you king right now on the spot. You don't have to go to the cross. We will make you king. That's such a tempting, right? Offer. What is, what, what, what's astonishing here is even with this debilitating prospect of bearing the wrath of God as his son, this is what Jesus prays. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew that his father could do anything, anything. But he also knew that the cup was unavoidable. Why? Because it was God's plan to save sinners like you and me. It was in his plan, and he needed a righteous savior, a perfect vessel in order to pour his wrath into to pay the penalty of our sins. That's Jesus, our sin bearer. His suffering is unique, so unique. But it's further exaggerated. We, we know that it's unique. Why? Because of his loneliness and isolation. He alone can drink this bitter cup. See, although Peter, James, and John were with Jesus, Jesus was absolutely alone in this moment. So the question is, why did Jesus bring them along? Why did, why did he bring these three fools along with him? The common assumption is that Jesus wanted sympathy. He wanted support. That can't be farther from the truth. That's not what Jesus wanted. So then what was the purpose of Peter, James, and John being there? See, by inviting these three disciples, Jesus is preparing them for their own suffering. That's why. So this brings us to our second idea, our shared suffering. His instructions for the disciples was to remain, stay awake, be watchful. 
Jesus gave the same command in the Olivet Discourse when he was predicting the destruction of the temple. What did he say in Mark 13, 37? And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. And we see the disciples once again failing to obey Jesus. Why did they fail? It's because they didn't get it. They didn't get Jesus. They didn't understand him. They didn't understand this moment of Jesus' agony and despair. They failed to grasp the real reason why Jesus came, the real purpose of his ministry. They didn't get it. So when the disciples should have been checking in on Jesus, what do we see Jesus doing? He's the one checking up on them. The strength of our Savior in his darkest moment. Verse 37, And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Two more times after this, he checks up on his friends. After disappointment after disappointment, Jesus shows an amazing care and compassion for his friends. Notice Jesus is not asking them to pray for him. What is he asking them to do? Pray for yourselves. Pray for yourselves. Why? Why pray for themselves? Because they are in danger as well. They are in danger as well. See, once betrayed and, and taken into custody, Peter's gonna go, he's going to be interrog- interrogated three times. And the last one was a little girl saying, you know Jesus, You're, I saw you with him. What does Peter say? I never knew him. I don't know him. The rooster course. Three times he denied Jesus Christ. After Jesus Christ is crucified, what do the disciples do? They all scatter. They go into hiding. They're afraid. And now we shouldn't blame them for being afraid. Because they too will experience suffering. All the apostles, every one of them, if you look into history, they all die for Jesus, for their faith in Jesus. And they die in the most horrific ways. Every one of them. All the apostles will suffer. All the followers, every disciple will ultimately share in Christ's suffering. But see, at this point, they had no clue what was waiting them. They had no clue that the suffering that, they were, that, that, was, that was to come for them. But here in Gethsemane, Jesus is trying to give them a glimpse through his own turmoil. So why didn't they get it? Why were they able to sleep? Maybe it was a food coma, right? Passover meal, they drink a few cups of wine, right? That would make anyone tired. Maybe that's why they were so easily, you know, falling asleep. Was it that? I think they were able to sleep so well because they saw in Jesus only what they wanted to see. Let me say that again. The reason why they were able to sleep because they saw in Jesus only what they wanted to see in Jesus. See, for the disciples, suffering did not belong in the same sentence as Savior. It did not. Again and again, Jesus predicted of his own suffering, but the disciples just refused to hear it and did not understand. And I don't think they wanted it to be true. Rightfully so. I don't blame them. Why? Because discipleship is literally following in the footsteps of your master and teacher. That is the definition of discipleship. That's what it looks like. You follow in the steps of your master and teacher. And so if Jesus suffered, 
then the disciples too will suffer. And so they turn a blind eye and they they close off their ears to every prediction that Jesus made that he's going to have to suffer and die. See, they were blinded by their own idea of a savior being a political ruler and king. Imagining, right? They're probably sleeping and thinking about their, the seat, right? That they, they're going to share in, in the new kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. Maybe there's a cabinet position waiting for me. So they conveniently left out all the predictions of Jesus' suffering. Now, I want to ask us today, are we seeing Jesus for who he really is? as a suffering savior? Or are we seeing in Jesus what we only want to see? Think about it. Right? So give me the Jesus that feeds thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a few pieces of it. Give me that Jesus. Maybe he can do the same for me with my stocks. Or maybe he'll give me a promotion. Maybe he'll get me that girl. Maybe he'll get me into that school. So give me that Jesus. Give me the Jesus that heals the sick and raises the dead. Because I have someone in, in, in the hospital that's, that's dying. Give me that Jesus. Don't give me the Jesus that is getting beaten, beaten up, spit on, mocked on, flogged, and crucified. Don't give me that Jesus. See, we live in a culture and society that's allergic to weaknesses and fla- failures. Don't we, do we not? We live in a culture and society that hates, right, failure and weaknesses. And this is what we do with our sports team all the time. The Lakers lose, you feel like a loser. The Dodgers lose the World Series, you lost the World Series. We hate that. But when they win, right? It's like ecstasy. Yes, I won too. Church, listen carefully. The Savior we worship and we, we, we claim to follow, suffered. He suffered. He was humiliated. He experienced pain, loss, betrayal, and he ultimately faced death. If you're a follower here today, why would we expect anything different? Why would we expect the complete opposite of the one that we're actually following? See, the world will tell us to do everything in your, in your abilities so that you don't suffer. Evade it. Escape it. Right? Because in this idealistic, capitalistic society, suffering equals failure. The thing is, go ahead and try. Try. Live long enough and you will suffer. Someone you love will die. Your body will fail you. Your relationships will experience brokenness and dysfunction. Give it enough time. All things will die and eventually decay. And I was having a conversation with one of our deacons. He's actually here, Deacon Ben. Uh, he's, he's pretty high up in the legal team for Disney. And he was making conversation with another associate of his, and he's more senior than actually Deacon Ben. And he's just making conversation. He asked him this question, what is your outlook, outlook on life? Now, this guy's Harvard grad, right? Probably making seven figures. What's your outlook on life? This was his reply. Life is a series of one disappointment after another, and then you just die. (laughs) Harvard, this guy made it in life, 
He probably has more money than he can spend. He says life is one disappointment after another and then you just die. It's fatalism. That's what fatalism is. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. You could do everything in your power to make eight figures, nine figures, whatever. Suffering will find you. You're not, you're, that's, no amount of money or success or fame is going to make you invincible. <laughs> it's not. There's, there's nothing. So he's right in one sense, but fatalism is not the gospel. Fatalism is not the gospel. What we have in the gospel and Jesus, who is our suffering Savior, is not only a purpose behind our suffering, but there is glory in it. See, the world tells us to do everything to avoid suffering. The gospel gives us the ability to suffer well and maybe even embrace it. Imagine that, that we can embrace suffering. And this brings us to our last idea, how to suffer well. See, not all suffering is the same. They come in various forms. The disciples, they're going to suffer. What is their suffering going to be like? They're suffering because of Jesus. And we call that suffering for righteousness sake. It's righteous suffering. Every Christian, as we're following Jesus, we may get persecuted. There's a lot of Christians, millions of Christians being persecuted right now in China. The second form of suffering is temptation. Temptation is a form of suffering, especially when you don't give in to temptation. That's when you suffer the most, when you want something so bad, but you resist. Right? Jesus modeled this for us. The third form of uh, suffering is self-inflicted suffering. These are consequences right, to our decisions and our actions that are sinful. Right? Alcohol addiction, drugs, withdrawals, whatever, pain, right? dysfunction, all comes from our, our own decisions, right? Another is natural suffering. This is a result of the fallenness of the world that we live in. Our bodies will fail us. There's disease. There's natural disasters. And that is another form of suffering. So although there are various kinds of suffering, one thing is true. No matter which form that they come in, every encounter with suffering that we have in this life is an opportunity for God's enemy to come in and whisper. Actually, not whisper, but maybe shout in our pain and suffering. Say things like this. Does God really love you? Is, he, is, is God really for you? Then why is your child in the hospital? Why is your marriage in the dumps? Why couldn't you get into that school? Why is your relationship failing? Why are you anxious? Why are you suffering from depression? Can God really be for you if all of these things are happening in your life? suddenly that whisper becomes louder and louder and louder. How do we in moments of pain, heartache, disappointment, and brokenness endure, persevere, and even overcome? How do we suffer well as Christians? Jesus is modeling it for us here. He's modeling it for us here, right in this moment in Gethsemane. What does he do? He falls to God in prayer. He falls to God in prayer. Now listen carefully. We see Jesus surrendering in prayer before suffering on that cross. Jesus is surrendering in prayer before God, before suffering on that cross. 
He's giving us a model of how we are to suffer well. See, the greatest spiritual battle that Jesus had to face was actually before the cross. It was surrendering his will, his will to the Father's will. And so the ability for us to suffer well in the future comes from surrendering to God's will today. Suffering is inevitable. It's going to come. It's just a matter of when. How are we going to suffer well? Surrender to the will of God today is preparation for us to suffer well for the future. Now, we've had a really long, drawn-out winter. It was raining a ton in this area. And one of our local home mission partners, Hope Gardens, they're a women and children's shelter. Right, these are the women and children that live in L.A. They get housed here. Every time it rains, you know what? The, I get a call. I get a call, and they're like, oh, we have to evacuate. Because of what? Mudslides, floods. So on a recent visit that I went, I went to, and I just looked around the campus, and I, all around the campus were, 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 were these sandbags everywhere, just laid out. What's the purpose of sandbags? Right, to prevent water from coming in. When do you do that? When you know that it's going to rain. Beforehand. It's too late if you put the sandbags there when it's, everything's already flooded. There's no point in that. So when you look at the forecast, you're like, okay, it's going to rain. Let's put out all these sandbags so we don't get flooded and we don't drown. That's what we're called to do. The forecast is very clear, brothers and sisters. Suffering is just a matter of when. And so Jesus models for us in how to suffer well. You go to God and you surrender your will, especially when things are going well. When you're not suffering, that's when you need to prepare. Prayer, surrender your will to the Father. So preparing for suffering doesn't mean, though, that it'll be easy. It's still very hurtful and very painful, and very frustrating and confusing. And many of you guys are there now. You're constantly visiting the hospital because your loved one is sick. Loved one is sick. You're backed up on bills. Or you're lonely. Dysfunctional relationship, everything, this all hurts. But as Christians, suffering should never consume us. It should never consume us to the point of despair, to the point of death. Why? Why should it not do that? Because Jesus, he goes through it for us at Gethsemane. He experiences it for us in this garden. See, on that cross, Jesus was consumed and engulfed by God's wrath. He absorbed all of God's judgment and condemnation by drinking that bitter cup so that you and I, we can be adopted as God's children. He was abandoned by God so that we can be accepted by him. See, when Jesus went on the cross, he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he hear anything back? No, God abandoned him. He turned his back at that time. Why? So that we can be accepted and that we can be heard. This is a Jesus that we worship. But not only that, three days later, he will rise again. In glory and perfection, silencing sin, Satan, and death, once and for all. So what does this tell us about suffering then? All suffering in this lifetime is temporary. It's temporary. Now, you may not feel that way. It feels like forever and eternity right now. Jesus rising again from the dead, it tells us that suffering is temporary. 
Not only that, it tells us that glory is eternal. Eternal glory. No more pain. No more sin. No more sorrows. Perfect physical bodies. That's our resurrection hope. That is the gospel hope that we have. It's temporary. It won't last long. So faith in Jesus Christ unites us so intimately with Jesus that when Jesus died on that cross, our sins died with him. We call that co-crucifixion. We share in that. But as he rises from the dead and is resurrected, we share in that as well. Victory over sin, Satan, and death. That's called co-resurrection. Now there's a third element to our union with Christ that we don't talk about much, and that's being co-sufferers with Christ. We are called to suffer with Christ. We're called to suffer with him. As his followers, living in this broken world, we will. It's a matter of when, not if. So to close, if I can speak to my friends here who aren't Christians. You've been checking out church, you've been coming for weeks now, and you have not yet made a profession of faith, or you haven't trusted in Jesus. Jesus Christ is offering himself as your suffering savior today. He's offering him to be your suffering savior, to make God your sovereign father. He's offering himself as a suffering savior to make God your sovereign father. And so the invitation for you is to believe, trust, confess your sins, trust in him as your Lord and savior. And if that's you today, and you really want to make that commitment and, and, and to trust in Jesus, please come and see me or Pastor Mike, and we'll love to pray for you. If I now can speak to the Christians, Jesus is inviting us here to this garden. He said, hey, take a look. Take a look at what I'm doing and my imminent suffering and, and the one that's, that's suffering that is coming very soon. What does he do? He calls out to Abba. He calls out to Abba. Not God. He calls out to Abba. He makes his request, but at at the end, he trusts himself to the Father's will. The question is, do you see God as God or do you see God as Abba? Is it Abba-ji or Appa? Is it just God or is it Abba? Think about it. Is he your father? Or is he just this this being, this abstract being that's in heaven that you don't want to just tick off? Or is he a father that's caring for you, that holds your life in his very hands, every single detail, right? Sometimes he will shield you from pain, but other times he will allow pain to come your way. But it's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. It's actually meaningful. There's a reason why. And one of the reasons why that he allows suffering to come in our lives is to tell us that we're not meant for this world. This world cannot satisfy. We can't find meaning in this world. We were created for him. That's why he just wakes us up every once in a while when things don't go the way that we want to remind us we were created for him. Is he God or is he Father? Jesus Christ makes God our Abba, Father. We can boldly go before him. We can intimately go before him. But the practice for us and the call for us is to surrender our will, not my will. 
Yes, I have all these needs. Yes, I want you to take away all these pains, but not my will, but your will be done because you are a good father. You know better than me. Brothers and sisters, I know it's not easy. There's so many people in this community that are suffering. It's overwhelming. What are we going to do? What hope do we have? If it's not found in Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior, look to him, pray to him, put those sandbags up, surrender your will to God for his glory, but ultimately for our good as well. Let's pray together. You know, before I close in prayer, I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond. If you are suffering here today, whether it's financial, relational, physical, professional, academic, whatever suffering that you're experiencing today, can I invite you to go before Abba Father and talk to him as if, and he is your Abba Father. Say, Dad, I, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Just be honest. Unload it all. Unload it all to God, our Father. He can take it all. But if you're so bold and willing, pray this prayer. Not my will, but Father, your will be done. Father, I don't see it now, but I know you're doing something. I, know, I, I, can't, I can't see that far into the future, but I know you're doing something. Help me to trust in you. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray that prayer. And for others who are not, you're not suffering. You're actually going through a season of just fruitfulness and joy and blessedness. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray as well. It's a matter of when, not if. So practice now surrendering your will to the Father's will. So pray that prayer as well. Not my will, but your will be done in my life. Let's pray together. I'm going to give us a moment and I'll close us. Father, I thank you so much that in Christ we have not only a suffering Savior, but a sufficient Savior who died for our sins but rose again for our salvation. Thank you for that example that we have in Christ at the prospect of bearing your wrath. He surrendered his will. I don't want to pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room that are suffering who are in pain, who are confused and frustrated. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'll help them to see you, not as just a God, but help them to see you as a loving, sovereign Father. God, we know that suffering is all temporary because we see Jesus on the throne, reigning on high. And us, by faith, we will experience the same. 
So give us that hope. Give us that hope, Lord. Father, as we follow after you, you promise that it, that it will not be easy. But we thank you, Lord, that you are with us and that you actually share in our suffering as well. So, Father, we look to you. We give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.